Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thanking through God's word together. Good morning, all of you. I, I love it when I see those come through. Jimmy Vision, Charlotte, uh, Christine, I think uh, I think you're the a first-time commenter there, I believe. So welcome. Glad to uh, meet you, quote-unquote. Uh, hey, Teresa, does that mean uh, if you're with us this morning, does that mean you're still ill? Sorry to hear that, if that's true. Good morning, Juan, and the rest of you uh, who are with us. We are studying through the book of Hebrews, and I'm so encouraged by the comments that I've been seeing, mostly because I can tell by the uh, some of the words that you've said, you're seeing Jesus in the Old Testament in ways you've never seen before, and it is having the the visceral ex- uh, response that I would expect. I remember when I first learned this, when I first really began to study the Old Testament as really about Jesus and examining how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. And as I've been teaching you, uh, whenever I see the New Testament quoting something, I go back and I look at the Old Testament in its broader context and really study to try to understand what was going on there, and then ask the question, then why and how does the New Testament author apply this? And it just changes everything, doesn't it? It is wonderful, and you see the plan of God so amazingly. So uh, keep those comments coming. I appreciate that. Um, uh, Teresa says, feeling much better. I work split shifts, so I have opportunities. Oh, well, excellent. Well, I'm glad you're here today. Uh, hey, Joe. Yes, uh, we are all glad she's feeling better. Oh, you talk about me? Thank you. I'm feeling better too. Teresa and I are both feeling better, apparently. <laughs> the Lord is good. All right, so in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, still comparing Jesus to angels, we see this. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, quote, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, there's something here I have to mention before we look at Psalm 97 that is quoted. The writer of Hebrews says, when he, when God brings the firstborn into the world. The, the term firstborn is so important when we look at the New Testament descriptions of Jesus. And I, I make a big deal of this. I wrote a book, a little book called Exalted, Putting Jesus in His Place. And uh, my friend Blake White uh, is convinced that I have Prototokos tattooed on my chest because Prototokos is the uh, Greek word for firstborn. And I make such a big deal about Jesus being the firstborn in that book and in so much of of my teaching because the scripture makes a big deal of Jesus being the firstborn. Now, when we hear firstborn, we think of birth order. And, uh, you know, some of you are probably your uh, firstborn children in your family. And we, we think, uh, you know, bossy or... Uh, well, that's so here most often. Uh, the firstborn say we had to, you know, try everything out for the rest of you, and uh, we didn't get to do nearly as much as the younger kids got to do. 
and the younger kids say, ah, he or she was bossy and got to do everything first. And, you know, there's, we have this, this uh, almost psychoanalysis of what's it like to be the firstborn? You know, if you're the firstborn, you, you're the prized one. If you're the lastborn, you're the prized one because you're the lastborn. And then you've got the, the in-betweens, the middle children that are always left out. So that's how we think of, of birth order. But when the New Testament talks about Jesus as the firstborn, they're talking about the uh, concept of primogeniture. You know what that is? Uh, that's where the firstborn son is the head of the clan when the father passes away. And the firstborn son receives the far greater inheritance and all of the other children serve the firstborn son. Well, this is used many times in the New Testament to talk about Jesus. And it fits right in with everything we've been saying. He's the heir of the world. He's spoken, God spoke to us long ago in many ways and many times through the prophets. But now in these last days, he's spoken to us in a son who's going to inherit the estate of the father. And he's the firstborn son. He's the ruler on all the other children will bow down to him. That's the firstborn blessing. Uh, from Genesis. So the writer of Hebrews here just throws that in along the way here when he brings the firstborn into the world. Now remember, this whole thing is setting up to warn these Hebrew Christians that when they reject the gospel and go back to the old covenant ways, they go back to the temple and priesthood and sacrifices, when they, when they abandon the sufficiency of of Christ and the gospel and the new covenant for the old covenant things, they're giving up the only blood that can truly bring forgiveness, but they are also turning their back on the son, the firstborn, who is the heir of all things, who is the ruler. He sat down at the right hand of the father, the position of authority. He's the king on David's throne. He's the firstborn. So he puts that in. He's, he's constantly doing everything here through this first chapter to exalt Jesus to his proper place in their thinking so they won't drift away from the gospel. So then he quotes here from Psalm 97. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now look at that carefully again. Let all the angels of God worship him. So the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 97, referring it back to Jesus, the firstborn. He says, let the angels worship him. All right, so let's look at Psalm 97. Uh, the quote is, is from verse 7, and let me read it to you here uh, as it's given to us in the NASB. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Do you see anything different from this quote in Psalm 97 compared to what we looked at in Hebrews 1? For those of you driving or working out, listening to this via podcast and can't see it, let me read it again. So this is Hebrews quoting Psalm 97. Let all the angels of God worship him. And here's Psalms. Worship him, all you gods. What's the difference? Let me give you a moment. I know there's a, a slight delay here. 
You see the, uh, do you see the distinction? The Psalm actually says, worship him, all you gods. Hebrew says, let all the angels of God worship him. I'm sure some of you will, you will get it, but I'm going to move on here. So the, uh, the Old Testament that we have in our English translations are translated from the Hebrew. Yeah, Carrie got it. Gods and angels. Hebrews says, let the angels worship him. And Psalm says, worship him all you got. So uh, the Old Testament's translated from the Hebrew. By the time the NASB, for instance, starts translating and the committee starts translating Psalms 97, they have many Hebrew manuscripts. And since we know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, they consider that to be a uh, more likely representation of what God revealed, what he, what he inspired, so they, they uh, translate it from the Hebrew. Well, the Hebrew here, this word gods, is the word Elohim, which you probably recognize. It is a plural word. The im uh, ending on Hebrew words is a plural ending. So wherever in the English translations you see the word God, if it's a capital G in the Old Testament, it's a translation of the word Elohim, which is a plural word, which is interesting, isn't it? And scholars have made all kinds of assumptions about that. Uh, it, it, you know, quite literally would be the word gods. And so some think that was a, an Old Testament way of describing God as a plurality in some sense, what we would call the triune nature. Um, uh, maybe, I'm not convinced, uh, but it so clearly refers to God, and the Bible clearly says God is one, that there seems to be uh, some indication, some, some understanding that uh, though it's, it's a plural form, it's referring to the one God. But it's also used to talk about gods, as in false gods, and also angels. The Greek translation of the Old Testament does not translate it gods. It's not a form of the word theos. They use here the word angelos, which is the word angel. The New Testament authors, they didn't have the Hebrew Old Testament. They had the Greek version. So the writer of Hebrews here, when he says, let all the angels of God worship him, they're quoting from the Greek translation, which does not have gods, but has angels. Okay, that may be more information than you wanted, but that's why there's a discrepancy here between the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament. So that's what what the writer, uh, what the psalmist here says: "You gods or angels worship him." And the writer of Hebrews says the him is the Son; it's Jesus. So now, just like we looked at 2 Samuel 7 yesterday and had to uh, sort of reinterpret it, not just as a statement about Solomon, but having another picture in mind, another son of David in mind, which is Jesus, now we have to read Psalm 97 
as a psalm about Jesus. Because that's what Hebrews 1 does with it. Remember, I've, I told you this. We read the Old Testament as a story of Jesus. We cannot come to the same conclusion about an Old Testament text that a Jew does. Because a Jew would never refer Psalm 97 to Jesus. Even if they think it's messianic, they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. As Christians, we know Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, Psalm 97 is about the Son, the firstborn, who is Jesus. So with that in mind, let's look at it. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Who's this Lord who's reigning? Well, again, this is so fascinating. The word here, Lord, is all capital letters. You see that? That is how your English translations render Yahweh. If it has capital L, small o-r-d, that's rendering the word Adonai, which means sovereign one. But when it's all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is Yahweh. That's the name that God gave Moses, I am. And we typically think of that as God the Father. Now, he's not revealed that way in the Old Testament, but that's how we think of now that now that we understand God is triune, we, we think, oh, Yahweh is the Father. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 9, we recite this every Christmas, when it talks about the uh, child being born to us, the son that's given, and he'll reign on the throne forever, that kind of thing. You remember? And from Handel's Messiah, right? He will be called, the, so the, the child who will be born to us will be called what? Wonderful Counselor. Everlasting what? Father. The son will be called father. Isn't that interesting? Now, some have gone crazy places with that and said there's not really a distinction to be made between the father and son, but that's not the point. This one who is the firstborn, the one who's talked about here in Psalm 97, the one who is that child given in Isaiah 9, he's God. He's the son of God. Therefore, he's of the same substance as God, so to speak. He is God. So here it's the Lord Yahweh reigns, but we know ultimately this is talking now about Jesus. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Christian, are you rejoicing today? Jesus reigns. Let the many islands be glad, the coastlands, let the ends of the earth be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This clouds and thick darkness conjures up Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20 when God gives the law to Israel. And remember, there's great darkness that comes and there's earthquake and there's thunderstorms and the trumpet blasting and it is a terrifying moment. And the Jews say, Moses, don't let God speak to us. We, we, we're afraid of him. You speak to us, Moses, but we're terrified of this God who is displaying his glory and his power and such uh, amazing ways here with the darkness and the thunder and all of that. So that that's the imagery of Jesus of uh, of God showing up to to Mount Sinai, and there and the psalmist here is borrowing that imagery to talk about God reigning, the Lord reigning, His throne, His His rule is founded on righteousness and justice. 
Jesus is now sitting on the throne. He is no less terrifying than Yahweh at Mount Sinai. We absolutely must dispense with this view that God in the Old Testament is harsh and, and judgmental and con- condemning, but Jesus is just about mercy and grace. No, that mercy and grace that Jesus brought, as John says in 1 John, is great news for us because of the contrast that he is also terrifyingly full of wrath for his enemies. His throne, Jesus' throne, is founded on righteousness and justice. If you don't throw yourself on his mercy and ask his forgiveness by believing in his death and resurrection, then you will suffer the terror of his justice. Jesus, your king, is a God of justice. And he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. The only way to avoid that punishment is to believe the gospel. This is talking about Jesus here in Psalm 97. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. Again, the writer of Hebrews is telling us this is not just about the God of the Old Testament. This is Jesus. Fire goes before him. Jesus burns up his enemies. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. We just saw a massive earthquake in Turkey. And the last projection I saw said they're expecting 50,000 deaths as a result. That earthquake was no accident. The earth trembles at the glory and the majesty of Jesus. I'm certainly not saying that everyone who died was his enemy. When the Lord brings judgments, his own people also suffer the temporal consequences. But that wasn't just the earth's plates moving. Jesus is king of all things. Now we escape his eternal wrath by believing the gospel, but we don't We don't escape the the temporal expressions of his power. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the whole Lord, at the Lord of the whole earth. And again, all of this is conjuring up that same uh, imagery from Exodus. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have seen his glory. See, when we don't give credit to Jesus for these, what we call natural disasters, We are preventing peoples from seeing his glory. Mother Nature did it. The laws of physics, the laws of gravity, the laws of whatever. No. King Jesus did it. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you angels. According to the Greek translation. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. So when we who know this, we rejoice when God shows his power. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all. 
all gods. Here, it's interestingly, the Greek does use gods. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who perseveres the, uh, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, that it would be the Lord Jesus, and give thanks to his holy name. The writer of Hebrews reads this psalm and says, that's about Jesus. That's about the son, the firstborn. And in Hebrews 1, applies it when he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. He's going to go on and make the point from Psalm 104. And we're going to have to now delay this till next week. Because <laughs> I took much longer through Psalm 97 than I intended. Angels are just messengers. They're just servants. But Jesus is to be worshipped. Angels are powerful beings. Angels wield all kinds of God-like power because God gives them the power and the authority to do all kinds of things in the world, but they are merely servants, messengers sent to deliver messages. But what does the scripture say about Jesus? He's God's son. He sits on the throne. He's reigning over all the earth. He is to be worshipped. Even the angels, as powerful as they are, they worship him. If angels worship Jesus right now, February 16th, year of our Lord Jesus, 2023, if angels bow down before him right now, if angels serve him, don't you think mere mortals should too? Oh, do you see how to read the Old Testament? Do you see how it all points to Christ? All right, let me see. Oink, oink has a couple comments here. Uh, perhaps the Old Testament is speaking in the same way Paul does when he talks about meat sacrifice to idols. The idols are gods, but they are sacrificing to demons. Um, especially since the verse in Psalm starts with all worshipers of images are put to shame. Um, let me see if I can go back and think what I was saying to why you would say that. The word uh, gods has, has a little more flexibility uh, than we tend to give it. Is that kind of what you're getting at? So yeah, on one hand, Paul talks about idols as though they're real things in the context where he's making the statement that they're not real things because there are no such things as real idols. There are no false gods. And yet uh, there are in the minds of men. And, and so he warns of that. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Um, yeah, God's, the word itself can apply to the one true God. It can refer to angels uh, in several contexts. Um, and then it can re refer to false gods. Although the common word for idol in the Old Testament uh, is not a word that, that means God at all. It's a, it's a uh, well, I'll say that for another time. I hope you are getting this. I, I, I encourage you, as always, take the time to dig into this. 
you know, we're going slow. We're, <laughs> we've been at this coming on the end of two weeks here in, uh, in Hebrews. And uh, we're at verse, uh, what was that? Four, five, six. But it is, it is worth it for your understanding of the New Testament and the gospel and how to read the Old Testament is to go slowly through this. So I hope it's worth, uh, worth your time. Thanks for joining us tomorrow's Friday, fellas. It's Fridays with the fellas. We talk about manhood. So gentlemen, come back tomorrow. And uh, ladies, we'll see all of you on Monday. God bless.